You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want to pray before we dive into our text, so if you would bow your heads with me, that'd be awesome. Father, thank you for those that you have gathered here today on New Year's Day. Lord, I pray that you would come and do a renewing and refreshing work in our hearts this morning. I, uh, I don't think that I'm the only one that walks in this morning feeling a little bit discombobulated by the holidays and the weather and the sickness that's been floating around. And so God, I just pray that you would remove anything in our midst that would hinder us from hearing from you. And God, I ask that you would come and speak to us. But I, I don't think anybody in this room needs to hear from me. Um, well, I really believe all of us in this room need to hear from you. So God, I pray that you would even come and, and uh, Lord, that you would cleanse me of any unrighteousness in these moments too. Lord, that you would use me as a vessel to speak for you on your behalf. But God, that your spirit would be released to move and speak to each of us individually. And God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for what you've done on our behalf at the cross of Jesus. Yeah. Pray that you would be present among us. God, we love you. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So it's the first day of a new year, right? Uh, 2022 is now behind us. We are now in 2023. Have fun signing checks for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> um, as a holiday, though, I, I think that New Year's is, uh, is something that's always intrigued me a little bit. And it's always intrigued me because it's an annual reminder, right? It's an annual reminder to set new goals for your life for the next year. Uh, all of us, I think, have a tendency to kind of get into that rhythm and start thinking about, man, what do I want to do different next year as this year comes to an end? You start setting those New Year's resolutions, right? So I don't know where you're at with that as you woke up this morning and got ready to um, join with the church. Um, but I know most of us focus on different things like, you know, losing weight, eating less. It's never been a goal of mine. So I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> Probably should be. My doctor tells me it should be quite a bit, but I don't listen to him very often. There's a good illustration in there. Just um, eating less, exercising more. Um, some, some of us need to work a little bit less, right? Some of us probably need to work a little bit more. Um, maybe need to pay down some debt, or maybe need to get more faithful at tithing or being generous. Uh, some of us like to do those, I don't know if some of you like to do those one-year Bible reading plans. Um, this is usually a time when people will start thinking about Signing up for one more of those and jumping into that and seeing how good you did with it last year. Um, regardless of what your goal is for, for, for this coming year, I know that this time of year is always a time when we start thinking about that, right? And I don't think, that, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Identifying areas of growth and then setting goals for like future growth, future change, future transformation, that's a very good thing to do. And I, like I said, I'm grateful we have that annual reminder. It does, it does make it a little bit funky and a little bit weird every year, I think, for preachers, because it's not like you can go to God's Word and find where God says, thou shalt set these five goals for the next year. He doesn't, you know, just, that rhythm is not in Scripture, really. <laughs> uh, the reality, I think, is that the Christian life, it, it really is all about, from, from the get-go, it's all about being renewed. Right? So the Christian life really should be like New Year's Day every day. That would maybe be a way of looking at it. 
All of the good Christian literature, all of the good Christian preaching that you may listen to, um, it really should be about some kind of transformation, some kind of spiritual growth, be being renewed, right, into the image of Christ. And then, then living that new life out that God has actually given us. Like God's given us that as a gift. The problem for us oftentimes is that this new life, like, like a brand new set of clothes that God gives us, we oftentimes just we set it off to the side. You know, you, when you wake up on Christmas morning, you don't, you don't want to get socks, right? <laughs> but sometimes you do. And oftentimes those are gifts that get set off to the side and you don't look at them again. And the reality is, sometimes we treat the Christian life the same way. God from the get-go has given us a brand new life. This is what God is about, right? He, he really is in the business from the get-go of making us into new creations in Christ Jesus. Why? Just so that we can walk around and say, I'm new. Or so we can walk around and show off our new lives. Yes, in a sense. Because when God makes us into new creations, He does this so that he might image himself or reflect himself to a watching world around us. And so this is what God's about, and I can guarantee you he's about this more than one day a year. So I think that's what makes preaching <laughs> a sermon on New Year's a little bit difficult. Um, nevertheless, there are tons of scriptures in the Bible about this new life that God has given us. So I want to walk us through about seven or eight of them <laughs> briefly. We won't do a super deep dive into each one. Just kind of do a, a treetop overview of this concept of what it means to be new creations in Christ Jesus. And the first place we'll start is in 2 Corinthians 5, right? It's a common passage, one that you might be familiar with. You, I mean, I, the whole Christian subculture drives me nuts anyways, but you're going to find Christian t-shirts and coffee cups with new creation in Christ and 2 Corinthians 5 all over it. It's usually right alongside the one that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's like, oh, really? I can fly today. <laughs> no, no, I can't. It's not true. <laughs> There's a context, right? 2 Corinthians 5, though, is fascinating. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me read it one more time for us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, there's something really encouraging about this passage when you read it, right? It's encouraging because it's kind of like a promise. It's like God is promising you and I that if you and I are actually in relationship with Jesus, then we've been made new. And all, of, all the old stuff about us has been put to death, right? That's, that's the promise. That's the truth of this passage. Your, your old self has passed away at the cross of Jesus. You're now a new creation. You're a new person if you've trusted in Jesus. Now here's the reality. I've been following Jesus for like 23 years almost. And if I'm really honest, there's days or weeks or months that go by where I don't feel so brand new. Anybody else join me in that? I just, you know, I, I don't wake up in the morning and feel brand new. Um, and even in the middle of the day, I don't feel brand new. It's hard to, to feel that emotionally. Yet, yet those feelings and those emotions and those experiences don't change the truth. 
right? The, the reality that God seriously is still making me new. That He has made me new as I trusted in Him. And that He is about the process of continuing to make me new. It's an interesting thing when you talk about this whole like new creation in Christ Jesus thing. What we're really talking about is a big theological word called sanctification. Can everybody say sanctification? <clears throat> raise your hand if you know it. No, don't do that. Because if you raise your hand if you know what that means, it means you get stars on your chart in heaven. And we don't play that game. Right? <laughs> Abe does. <laughs> it's like, give me my stars, baby. <laughs> There are no stars on the chart in heaven, okay? The only star on the chart in heaven says Jesus, and he won it for you. But this big word, sanctification, right? It basically, what does that mean? It, it means that you are brand new. It's basically what it means. You're set apart. You're, you're special. God has sanctified you, but at the same time, he is sanctifying you. So the moment that you trust in Jesus, you are a new creation, right? Regardless of the sin that's still present, and the ways that you still fail, and all the weaknesses that you still have, in front of God, you are completely perfect. But in this moment here on earth, you're also being made perfect. And then there's this other side of this whole story where at, 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 at one time, when you get to heaven, you will be completely perfect. So you know, when, when you think about this whole concept of being new, being made into a new creation, it is, there's three parts to that. And it's kind of hard to settle into because you and I live right here on earth, right? And we experience those days where we don't feel so new. And sometimes I think when we look at the Bible, we start thinking, you know, the Bible doesn't really account for that. Well, it does. Okay, so turn to Romans chapter 7 with me real quick. Look at verses 22 through 24. In Romans 7, 22 through 24, uh, the Apostle Paul basically is talking about this struggle between the new man that he is in Christ and the old man, the old sinful man that is still alive inside of him, right? Look at what it says, Romans 7, 24, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, right? Deep down inside. I delight in the law of God. But I see in my members, what's he saying, my members? He's saying in my body or my, my physical behaviors, my, my life. I see there another law, he says, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's saying, he's saying sin, that law of sin is still actually fully alive inside my body. It's still present. It hasn't been eradicated completely. He follows that by saying, wretched man that I am, right? You ever felt that way? I'm such a wretched man. Just wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It feels like kind of a hopeless and helpless place to be, doesn't it? Yeah. You ever experienced that? And I think we probably all have, right? We've all experienced that to an extent. And again, like I said, I admit in my life there, there's periods, seasons, periods of time where I feel that hopelessness, right? Or I feel that helplessness in that war against sin, the war between the old me and the new me, right? It's like, it's like almost some kind of duplicity inside of me, right? Like I really want to serve God with my entire life. 
right? And I, I'd say that and proclaim that, and then one of my kids does something stupid, and I'm like, Aah! right? <laughs> like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? Um, I'm sure you understand that, right? You get that. You proclaim God with your lips. You say, I want to serve him, I want to love him. He's loved me so well. And then you have a fight with your spouse or a friend, and you say some of the stupidest things, right? Or, or your mind gets, starts wandering, right? And you start getting lustful thoughts, or you start thinking angry thoughts, or whatever it may be. So there are periods, right? Seasons where... This, um, this war between the old man and the new man can just be really, I don't know, depressing. You ever feel sad because of that? Right? Frustrated? And you have to remember that even as Paul's writing this in Romans 7, um, Paul still goes right back to an eternal perspective in Romans 8, which I'm not, I don't have on the screen. Because I can tell you guys, if we did Romans 8, we'd be here for five days, because I love Romans 8. It's one of my favorite places of Scripture. In fact, I would, I would encourage you, um, if you have not listened, I think I've, I've recommended this a few times, if you've not listened to my friend Todd Bumgarner from Two Pillars Church in Lincoln, if you've not listened to his series on Romans 8 yet, please go listen to it. That dude takes like one word, two words, three words at a time, and just slowly works his way through it over the course of like 12 weeks, I think. And it's super refreshing. So go listen to his sermon series. But keep in mind that as you think about this struggle between the old man and the new man that Paul's talking about here where he's saying, hey, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He jumps right into Romans 8 after that, right? And what does he proclaim? Well, there's two bookends to Romans 8 that I absolutely love. And at the front end, the first bookend is this. There's no condemnation for you. And at the very end of Romans 8, there's another bookend, and it simply says there's no separation for you. There's no condemnation from God, and there's no separation from God. So Paul puts those two together, right, 7 and 8, and he's brutally honest about his struggle with sin in 7. And then in Romans 8, he's just like, yeah, but there's no condemnation. Now, that's, we know that's not meant to like, enable us to sin, right? If, in fact, if that does make you go, well, I could, I could probably just go sin some more, then you're probably not a believer, Right? Because that's not where Paul goes. When Paul goes to Romans 8 and he says, hey, there's no condemnation and there's no separation, all throughout that he talks about what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. So at the end of the day, it can be really easy to doubt the work of God in us, through us. Um, but the truth is that God's still God and he's still about this work of making us into new creations, Right? And I think there's another key to this. The other key is the promise of heaven. I think the promise of heaven is a huge piece in, what, in, in, in learning how to live out this new life. Look with me at, at, at Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 14, it's the Apostle Paul once again writing to the Philippian church, right? And look at what he says. He says that he has basically, he says, I, I've not already obtained 
this perfection of this, this new life in Christ uh, at the resurrection. Because Paul kind of makes the connection that, hey, there is a point where this new life in, in Christ is going to be complete. I'll be completely perfected, completely new when I experience the resurrection when Jesus returns. And in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3, he says, hey, I haven't already obtained that. It hasn't happened yet. I'm not in heaven yet. I'm still living here on this earth. And even though I haven't already obtained that, look at what he says in verses 12 through 14. He says, I press on. I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now those, that phrase there, that phrase is, is fantastic. So it's so like if you go back to the original languages, you know, the New Testament here is written in the Greek, right? Um, so I love asking questions like this because it's always a blast and kind of, kind of a lot of fun. When you look at that phrase, um, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do, do you know what the, the, the Greek words for Christ Jesus has made me his own, do you know what that means? Thank you. <laughs> it just simply means what it says. <laughs> And I say that a little bit sarcastically because theologians love to argue over the meaning of words and the meaning of context and the meaning of phrases, right? And it's like, hey, who, who made Paul a believer? Christ Jesus made me his own. Paul belongs to Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus came to him and made him his own. And because of that, he says, I press on to make this reality of this resurrected, brand new life mine. I'm not just sitting back passively like, yo, God, you can do whatever you want to do. I can't do anything. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. That's not his position. He said, I press on to make this my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He moves on and says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Again, this perfect newly resurrected man. I have not made that. I haven't experienced that yet. He says, but one thing I do, I love this phrase too, one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind. Now, here's where it gets a little funny because I had a friend of mine look at me, he goes, you know that word forget there? It doesn't actually mean forget. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, it does. It says forgetting. Like, every teacher in school would dean you for that one. Like, <laughs> forget means forget. Hello? He's <laughs> like, no, forget doesn't really mean forget here. Forget means not controlled. And so, well, okay. I guess that makes sense. He's forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And the point Paul is making here is, I will not be controlled by the sins of my past as I press on toward the goal of full transformation in the presence of God in heaven. He knows he's not in heaven yet. He knows he's here on earth, walking through this sin-filled earth, right? And it's going to be a struggle, and it's going to be hard. Yet he's also saying, I will not be controlled by my past. And if anybody in the Bible had a past, the Apostle Paul had a past, right? The terrorist, basically. A murderer of Christians. Did some really horrible things. He said, I will not be held back by that. I will continue to press on towards the goal of full transformation. Here's what I think. When you read this from the Apostle Paul, I think you, you begin to get this idea that, that a heavenly vision is really the key to earthly transformation. Think about that. 
that, that a heavenly vision, a heavenly image, a heavenly picture of who you are and, and whose you are, like who you belong to. He says, Christ Jesus made me his own. Not, 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 and who you are flows out of whose you are. Who you belong to dictates who you are. And I can tell you, like, I'd be really honest. Well, not completely honest, but really honest. Well, not transparent, but vulnerable. You guys following me? Okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times my wife has ministered to me so well and sat down, looked me in the eyes, and said, if you could see yourself the way God sees you, you wouldn't be in the dark place you're in right now. And you as I look at her, I'm like, would you just shut up, please? <laughs> and wh- why? Because I don't believe that. It goes back to the help me to believe. I believe. Help me my unbelief, right? This picture of whose you are, you belong to God, right? The Redeemer, the, the Maker of all things, the Creator. And not just the Redeemer, the Maker, the Creator, but the Savior, right? The one who, who came for you, the one who who like chose you and wrote your name in a book of life and, and then now gives you his spirit and calls you his own. I mean, if, you could, if you catch, if we could catch that and hold on to that, I mean, I belong to the God of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence. He's holy and he's perfect and he's righteous and he's just and he's also completely loving. He loves me more than I could ever imagine regardless of my failures and regardless of all the good things I've done, right? If I catch that picture and then start to flow out of that, I belong to God, that means I am, this is who I am. That's a heavenly vision, a heavenly picture of how God sees you and I if you're in relationship with Jesus. That, I think, would radically change our journey here on this earth in terms of transformation, being made new, walking in this new life that we've been given, right? Putting on those new clothes rather than letting them sit over here on the shelf alongside the Bible that's getting all dusty, right? Hey, look with me at Revelation 21. Since we're talking about this, this picture of heaven, right? Look at Revelation 21, and it's verses 3 through 5. So when, when, I, when I read uh, this, this chunk of scripture, um, I imagine myself like being in the Apostle Paul's shoes, right? And I think, I think he'd like look across the table at the Apostle John and think he'd be like, John, you know when you wrote that thing in Revelation about heaven, that's really good. That's the way I see it. They're, they're probably like mob bosses because I like mob bosses for some goofy reason because I'm Italian. That has something to do with it, but he's... I just think he's sitting at the table and he's like, yo, John, you did a really good job with that description. That's really good. I can see that in my mind and it helps me. Revelation 21, 3 through 5, Apostle John says, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is a picture of heaven. Can you, think, can you imagine what it'd be like to live in the same house with God? I mean, I, if you got kids or you have a spouse, or even if you're a single dude living with a few other single guys, <laughs> you know what it's like to live with other people, and it can get kind of crazy, right? My wife and I were just talking last night, like, what, if we just got rid of the two dogs we have, life, life would be a lot easier. And then we saw a commercial for a robotic dog. <laughs> like, hey. And the robotic dog flew. But if the robotic dog would clean the house and not shed and not mark its terror, I mean, 
Do you think about what it's like, though, the sacrifice that it takes, you know, to live with other people, to have a family or a spouse or kids or to have friends? Can you imagine what it would be like to live with God? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Here's what it would be like to live with God in heaven. Catch this next part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Can you imagine that? Can you really imagine what it would be like to no longer cry tears of grief over loss, over hurt, over betrayal, over rejection, over your own failures? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Right? The old stuff has gone away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Yeah, I read that passage, and it gives me a ton of hope, Right? To, to know that in heaven you and I will be released from this body of death once and for all. will be made perfectly new in Christ Jesus. Like I'm absolutely convinced if you and I could grab a hold of that picture, that, that future, eternal, heavenly picture of our fully transformed and fully perfected selves. I mean, think about it. That whatever the best picture you have of you at the gym this blows that away by far. I have an image of myself at the gym and what I think I'm going to look like if I could just stick with it. <laughs> this blows that away by far. And if you could get that picture in your head, that vision of how God sees you and, and what it's going to be like to be in God's presence completely, then wouldn't that make this journey towards that destination a whole lot more transformative? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It's a good place to go next. Verses 22 through 24. Keep that image. I don't know what image. I mean, I'm doing the best I can, right? I don't know what image the Holy Spirit's placing in your mind. Hopefully it's not me at the gym. <laughs> oh, shoot. Ruined that. <laughs> Whatever image God would give you of what the, like the, the perfect you is. Like... Like what the godliest image of yourself would be. Right? And some of that has to be in line with what you know is ungodly in your life, right? Like, let's be real. Like, we're not just floating around on clouds like angels with harps, right? It's, we're not, it's not fairy tale stuff. We're actually, there's some boots on the ground, nitty gritty. Like, you know, there's this old stuff inside of you, whatever that may be. That's the old you need. But there's a new you that's free from all of that. That image, I hope the Holy Spirit's put in your mind. Keep that, keep that in your mind, if you would. Because I think, I think if you have that image in your head, I think it makes it easier to then obey the instructions that Paul gives here in Ephesians 4. Look, look what he says. Chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, he says, Put off your old self, right? Take those old clothes off. Belongs to your former manner of life. Those are old, nasty, gross clothes, right? It's corrupt through deceitful desires, is be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's interesting, he starts there, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He doesn't say, 
man, stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, stop lusting, stop. He starts here, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So there's an inner work that has to take place for the externals to get in place. Yeah. There's an inner work that needs to take place for the externals to get in place. He says, put on the new self now. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's again, I think this comes back to an eternal vision. You catch an eternal vision of who you belong to and who he says you are. That radically transforms the inside of you so that the outside of you can kind of get in line. But we serve a God who loves to make all things new, right? It's not just you and me. At some point, the promise is there's a new heavens, there's a new earth. Everything gets renewed and restored. Everything. I think sometimes, though, we have a tendency to think that that process of change is either all on God's shoulders or it's all on our shoulders, right? And, and isn't it kind of weird? I don't know if you know what that's like when you kind of bounce back and forth between the two. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm sick and tired of fighting this thing. Like, you're just going to have to deal with this, <laughs> right? It's kind of that passive, like, giving up thing. I mean, it's a heart issue. I don't think we normally see that, but it's a heart issue when we do that. It's like, hey, Lord, I'm just going to, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> you know, it's stupid cultural Christianity stuff that, like, gets into our minds, you know. Um, then on the other side, uh, we can flip from that ditch over to this, this thing where it's like, it's all on me. I've got to get this straight, and I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. You know, there's, there's something good about that. There's something very good about trusting God to make it all new, too. But there's an extreme of both those ends that can be really, really destructive and really, really unhealthy and, and doesn't cause any kind of actual spiritual growth in us, Right? So on the one hand, you know that God is the one who does the work of making us new, right? He's the one that does that work. But we know at the end of the day, I, th I think that, that you and I cannot do anything to either earn or, or even to enable God in his transformative work. Like I, there are theologians and I, I think well-meaning Christians who would say like, hey, you, you got to quit like somehow hindering God in his work in you. And it, it, there is truth there that you, um, that you can hinder God to an extent, right? Like you can, you can grieve the Holy Spirit um, and you can like stop that work that he wants to do. Um, but it's not like God's not able. It's more that you're not receptive, I think is the way that works out. So it's not like you and I, like, and, and I think the reason I'm getting after this is it's, it's like, it's not like you and I can somehow just please God enough to where he's like, oh yeah, Dominic, you've done so good now. Now I'm going to do some work in you. It's not like that. It's not, it's not that picture. It's more like I'm just like, no, God, I, I really don't want you to do anything right now. He's like, okay, well, I'm not going to force this. I think that's the picture we should have in our heads. At the end of the day, there, there's a partnership, I think, that has to take place here, right? Like God does his part, and there's a part that we are responsible to do. And I can tell you this much, no matter how much all the, the theological twisting and turning we do and we try to think about these things and try to explain them with the right words, right? No matter what we do there, here's the one thing you and I can know for sure. God is more than able. God is more than capable. And God fully desires to continue that work 
of making us into new creations in Christ Jesus who reflect God really well in the world. And we know that we consistently fail at joining him in the work. Um, but that's it's a partnership, I think. Uh, look at Romans chapter 12. There's another passage that I think is fairly common. You, you probably know it fairly well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, right? It's this, this big worship passage. Apostle Paul says, by the mercies of God. Now, pause there for a minute. Notice what he doesn't say. By this, uh, by this long list of things that thou shalt do right and thou shalt not do wrong. He doesn't say based on the rules. He doesn't say uh, based on the really cool Christian book that you just bought from wherever, Amazon. He doesn't say any of those. Based on the scrolls that I have in my backpack, you know what I mean? Based on the law, of, you, you all know Moses, but he, you know what Moses said, right? Based on what Moses, he didn't say that. There's a lot of things he could base what he's about to say on. So this thing gets interesting, and I think it's important for us to understand. He, he says, by the mercies of God. So because God has been so merciful. So the idea here is he starts with mercy. Mercy is God has withheld from you what you deserve, right? You and I deserve what for our sin? Death. Right? But Jesus died that death for us. That's the gospel. That's what we trust in, that he died that death. And that he left that tomb empty so that we might experience that one day too. So that in this life right now, this blink of an eye between here and heaven, we can trust in the mercy of God. So he says, by the mercy of God, the fact that God has withheld from you what you deserve, do this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So now he's getting pretty practical, right? Now he's saying, hey, your, your body, everything you do with your body is worshiping someone or something. Now, Paul is really good all throughout Romans. I mean, somebody has said that if all you had was Romans, and you had no other book of the Bible, it's all you would need. It's, it's, it's the Apostle Paul's, they, they say magnum opus, I think is the word. <coughs> it's his greatest work, right? The gospel is so clear throughout Romans. <coughs> and part of what he talks about throughout this, this book of Romans is what it looks like for us to worship the created rather than worshiping the creator. Right? The creator is the one, God, pours out that mercy on us. So in light of that mercy, in light of the fact that God has not wiped you off the face of the planet like you deserve, right? That, that's, that's a picture. In light of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything you do with your body is worship. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he, he ties it all together really well. How are you going to do that? Well, he says, here's how you do this. Do not be conformed to this world. So the word, you know, when you think about conformity, the idea of conformity is like when you take a piece of clay or Play-Doh, right, and you, and you form it. it that Play-Doh or clay is being conformed from the outside, right? And you're shaping it and you're molding it. And the reality is this is something that God does in our lives. He does conform us. He does shape us and mold us from the outside. Um... But that doesn't happen without him doing a work inside. So, so he says, hey, don't be conformed by the world. 
Don't, don't, don't be conformed to all of the things around you. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the way that you're transformed is when your mind is renewed. Right? So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you think about that, th- this image about this new life and growing into those new clothing, so to speak, revolves around not being conformed by the externals, but being transformed internally by the God who does that internal work. So all of this is true, right? Not a lot of practicality here, but we, I think we can sense the truth in it. Look with me at, at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I think this is our last passage. There might be one more after that, maybe. Colossians. <laughs> there might be. Maybe two. I don't know. We've got, still got time, though. So, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 17. Uh, we're going to kind of move through it chunk by chunk and just kind of look at the, the broad concept of what Paul says here. Because um, here's the here's before we dive into it, I think some of the tendency when you're talking about what we're talking about this morning, and I'm sure you can sense it a little bit, like some of this is so, it feels like it may be so high or heavy, right? Or, or maybe some people would say that's really like kind of, that's hard theology to think about, right? Um, just give me some practical, give me five things to go do so I can get out of here, right? Um, I'm resisting that <laughs> for a reason. We'll come back to that later, but... Um, my, my point is, is we, we can't stay in that kind of general, hazy area when, when we're talking about the old life and the new life. Right? If you just center on that, you get some theology inside of you that says, okay, the Bible teaches this about what God wants to do, and this is kind of what it looks like, um, but it's not just generalized. It's not just like, yeah, I, I need to confess my sins. Dear Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Amen. Right? There's some specificity here. Um, that Paul jumps into. So, so if you're looking at Colossians 3, look at verses 1 through 4. I really love where he starts in verses 1 through 4. Look at what he says. It says, if then, so it's a big if, right? If then you have been raised with Christ, uh, lots of words there that we don't have time to spend a bunch of time on, but he's basically saying, hey, if then you, you do believe in Jesus, right? If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Lots of good stuff in what he just said. But it's also like, some people are probably like, what the heck did he just say? Well, he's basically saying that since you and I, if you and I have trusted in Christ for salvation, then what you and I need to do is continue to trust him for our future hope in heaven. Keep our eyes focused on that hope of heaven. Comes back to that heavenly picture, right? That theme is all over the scriptures. Keep your eyes locked on heaven. Don't let the things of this earth control you and your perspective and the way that you live. Keep your eyes locked on heaven. You're not there yet, but that's where you're headed. It's kind of like the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were headed to the promised land. They were constantly headed to the promised land. And that hope and that joy of getting there and that that fulfillment of that promise coming true. Um, 
promised land for us is heaven. And Paul is basically saying, hey, keep your eyes locked on that as you make this journey. Right? Now, thankfully, we're not wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, though it probably does feel that way sometimes for us, doesn't it? You're headed towards heaven. This is what it looks like. Keep your eyes locked on that. Ignore some of the things on earth. Now he moves on. Verses 5 through 10. And here's where he gets really specific. So if you're wondering what it looks like to live this new life versus this old life, now Paul pulls out the list, okay? Um, it's interesting because you, know, you ever have to confront a friend for something they did wrong? You have to discipline a kid for something they did wrong? Isn't, isn't the place we typically start with is uh, the list of do's and don'ts? Hey, I told you, I told you, don't eat the leftover steak because that's mine. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> don't we start there? <laughs> Paul didn't. I don't think God does either. I think God typically always starts with, hey, you know what? I am your redeeming God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of your sin. I'm the one who gave Jesus for you. In light of that, now do this. In light of whose you are and who you are, live this way, right? So Paul says very specifically, verses 5 through 10, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, right? What is earthly in me? Sexual immorality, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. <laughs> you don't want that. So he's saying you don't want to face that. Okay. In these, you too once walked. So he's acknowledging, hey, y'all used to walk in some of these sins, right? That's, that's the old person. You used to be that when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And, and I think Paul's thinking, hey, if I didn't get enough on the list, let me add some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, so, so our future... Our future picture of heaven, I think, is meant to help us to, to put our old selves to death as we put on our new selves that are then constantly being renewed into the image of Christ. But it's very specific, right? Paul is very specific about certain things that we think, certain things that we desire, and certain things that we do. And all three are attached together, right? It's not just the behavior of your lives. It's not just the, the bad thoughts that roll around in your, in your mind. It's not just the things that you want that you shouldn't want. It's all of it tied together. And if you focus on one versus the other, you wind up being, I think, really skinny, if that makes sense. Like You're not getting after the full picture there. So, so look at verses 12 through 17. Um, he continues to, in this kind of very specific list, first he talked about putting something off. Now he's going to talk about what to put on, very specifically. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now let me just stop again. This is, do you find it interesting the way he says that? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I mean, hasn't he already said it enough? You're chosen by God. You're holy, which means perfect and set apart. You are beloved by God. Why do you think he starts there? 
Once again, Paul's doing what I think we all need to hear over and over. He's reminding us of our identity, right? of whose we are and who we are. He's saying you're chosen by God. You're holy and perfected by God. You're full of God's love has been lavished upon you. Nothing you can do can change God's love for you. So this is who you are, right? So in light of that, put on what? Compassionate hearts. Now I just, I don't know how many years y'all have been involved in a church. Um, But if you just apply this just simply to a body of believers, not to the outside world because this has nothing to do with them, right? Paul's not writing this to unbelievers, he's writing this to believers, So I would just say, if we were to apply what he's saying here to a body of believers, can you imagine what the image of that body of believers to the outside world would be like if we put this kind of clothing on? So listen to the words, compassionate hearts. Compassionate. What's the opposite of compassionate? Who can tell me? Somebody's got to be able to tell me. Not compassionate. What was the other one? Calloused. What did I hear over here? Spiteful? Okay, that's fine. That's the opposite. Which do we see more of in the church oftentimes today? Just, that's yeah, a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's meant, and I mean, it's meant to lead you to that answer. Yes, no, it's mean, yeah, rhetorical means yeah, meant to lead you to that answer, yeah. It's like a sarcastic question. <laughs> yeah, there's an obvious answer there, right? So, compassionate hearts. How about kindness? How about kindness? Well, what's the opposite of kindness? What's that? Mean-spirited, rude, resentful. <laughs> okay, so I want to share this carefully. So when we started out, when we first started out with like six of us in the, in the, in the living room, you know, 10 years ago, somewhere about halfway through, I realized we were not a friendly church. And some of you that have been here that long are like, oh my gosh, I remember this. I just realized we didn't greet visitors when they walked in. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we showed up late and we left early, <laughs> you know? Um, when we were asked to get up and go shake people's hands, people would just sit in their chairs. <laughs> it's like, hey, we just asked you to go greet people. We were not friendly. We were not kind. We were rude. <laughs> we were mean-spirited. <laughs> Um, you're, I mean, it, it, for most of you, this is probably not your first church. You've been in, in a church before, at least, where you felt that, where you walk in and you go, I don't even know if anybody noticed me. Right? It's not kind. Let's move on. Humility, right? Humility. What is humility? How would you describe humility? Somebody give me one word. Can you give me one word to describe humility? Selflessness, yeah? Thinking of yourself less. Being selfless. My old pastor that discipled me for a lot of years said teachable. Teachable spirit rather than a know-it-all. <laughs> Anybody ever see that video called the Me Monster? <laughs> okay. So find the Me Monster video and you'll see what the opposite of humility looks like. But I'll, I'll try to find it and post it in our Facebook group. That might be helpful. Let me just move on to these. Meekness, right? He says put on meekness. Put on patience. I hate that one. I just... Say, I hate that one. I'm a naturally very impatient person. I want it done now. And I want it done right. <laughs> when it's not done right, oh man, I think I've probably been a decent boss. 
but I probably just fired everybody because I would have been done right. I'm not patient. That's my point. Not very patient. God has taught me a lot about patience over the years. How about this bearing with one another? And if one has a complaint against another, you should call the pastor and tell him. No, no, you should call the other members. No, no, you you shouldn't do that either, right? What do we usually do? I'm not saying necessarily we, but this is what we're known for, right? Um, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's a really phenomenal idea. Forgiving each other. That means to release somebody from what they deserve. Basically is what forgiveness means. It's a really hard thing. I remember watching a video of a, uh, oh man, yeah. I remember watching a video of a guy who uh, had drunk driving, had killed a kid, I think, and he was in court. And, and the parents of that kid came up to him and in court read a statement to him where they said, we forgive you. And it was one of the most, like, wrecked me, you know, for days. Just watching these people do what they did in releasing him from what was owed to him. I recently went to court here in the community for a gentleman that um, drunk driving one night killed two kids a few years ago. That was a painful day. Hearing the whole story of everything that happened. It was brutal. It was gruesome. And he, he got the full, full weight of the law thrown at him. The judge even looked at him and said, I don't believe you. I don't, I don't believe you when you say you're sorry for this. That was really, like for me, I'd gotten to know him over the last year. That was really hard. Um, see, you can see that when you, when you think about forgiveness, there's this, there's this aspect of justice that, that's, that's wrapped up in that. And I think the way that you forgive is you, you recognize that, you know what, justice was served at the cross. And whoever's not a partaker of that mercy and the justice that was served at the cross on, on somebody who was perfect named Jesus on our behalf, somebody, somebody who has not trusted in that is going to face full justice at the judgment seat. And so, so I'm enabled to forgive even the worst of those, those even who aren't believers. Because I can trust that my God's going to take care of that, right? So, so here you got forgiving each other, right? And he, said, he even says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these things, put on love. And I love that. He's like, hey, you know what? Let's just capture all this together and let's say love. The problem with love today is that our culture has just changed the word love into things that it really doesn't mean. You know? um, at least they think it means that, but it's not the biblical meaning for love. How about that? Um, so put on love. Binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I have to make a comment on that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, this is what it looks like for us to put on this new clothing, right? If you're going to take off the old clothing and put on new clothing, this is part of that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, I don't know about you, but if you, if you um, envision your heart like a big house, right? A big house, the whole bunch of rooms, got a basement, got an upstairs, got a mid-level. And in those different rooms in that house, there's all sorts of things living, one little space in the basement, there's, there's this renter, and his name is Shane, and he keeps setting up space there. And the problem is, is I, keep, I keep allowing him in there for what he says he's going to pay me to rent the space, right? It's ridiculous. If I can wrap my mind around it. And then there's this other room in the basement. I think that's where guilt stays. Guilt seems to stay there. Sometimes he pays me more than shame does. You following me? You fill up those rooms of that house of a heart 
And what's going to rule in your heart? You got anxiety, you got anger, you got fear, you got frustration, you got jealousy, you got lust. I mean, the list goes on in what you can fit in that little, what do they call it? An idol factory. It runs day in and day out, all day long, right? You fill that heart up, and who's going to rule your heart? And he says, hey, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I like that idea. I like peace because then I could sleep at night without eating 15 sleeping pills. That's an exaggeration. Never eaten 15 sleeping pills. Don't come chase me down, Doc. I'm not 15. One. <laughs> the peace of Christ was ruling in my heart. What would that do for my life? What would that do for yours? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I love that. We're really short sentence. Three words, and be thankful. Who do you think Paul had in mind when he's writing this? There was this one guy who was really ungrateful. I remember he did me a lot of harm. All he could do was complain. Email after email, text after text, complaint after complaint after complaint. I don't like the color of the trim. I wish the chairs were straight. He just was not thankful, just ungrateful about everything, right? I just see Paul sitting there. He goes, I'm going to write one sentence, three words. And here's the thing. Paul never writes a sentence in three words. If you know Paul, if you read Paul, he writes run-on sentences. He writes this one, three words, be thankful, right in the middle of all that. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think if we're going to have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and kick out all the other tenets that we keep allowing in there, I think the way you do that is letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, right? Teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think it's easy to see when you read this, Paul's very specific about what it means to take off the old self, put on the new self, right? I want to conclude uh, everything we studied and talked about and looked at by basically asking one question. When you think about all of this old self versus new self, all the stuff we've talked about this morning, again, I mean, entire volumes, shelves, have been filled with discussions about what it means to live the new life. How do you do that? I've been asking that question for 23 years. How do I take off the old self? How do I put on the new self? And there's lots of really great self-help books out there. Um, there's lots of really great theological books out there, too, that help. I would say one of the things that has helped me out um, has been looking at Old Testament characters. You ever look at Old Testament characters like Moses or Abraham or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You look at Daniel. I think here's the, the problem at times by doing, with doing that is that you look at them, you kind of idolize them like somehow they had it all together. But I think if you read the text and you read those characters like the sinful, frail, broken humans they are, and then just observe their relationship with God. That, that's kind of been where I've been for the last few years, observing their relationship with God. How do they talk to God? How does God talk to them? How do they spend time together? Right? Because it's, it's more than just like some academic, I'm going to sit down and read these five books. It's a relationship with the God of the universe who wants to transform you from the inside out. And like, I... It's easy for me to get all caught up in the externals and the behaviors and things I need to get straight and don't look at this and do look at that and don't say this and do say, I mean, it's easier because there's something concrete about that, right? I, I, could, I could say, hey, when you guys walk out of here today, I want you to have five goals. Read your Bible more, pray more, spend more time in community, show up at church more often, start tithing a little bit more. I mean, I can give you all those things and say, that's going to make you a better Christian this next year. And here's the thing. 
it'd be kind of true. Be kind of true. Be a little bit better of a Christian. But is there any such thing as a better Christian? No, there really isn't. There is a sense in which we grow in holiness and grow in our newness. But I can tell you that if you just focus on all those externals without having something happen on the inside of you, a heart change and a mind change, your journey is worthless and it's hopeless. So that, I think that's why I look at some of the Old Testament characters. And the one that I love the most, the one that is my favorite, many of you know this, is David. David, I just identify with David. I read some of the stories in his life and I go, did that. <laughs> been there. I didn't kill her husband though, but been there. Right? I can identify with David. He's got a jacked up family because of his own sin. And I do too. <laughs> jacked his life. I mean, in Psalm 51... I need to wrap this up. Psalm 51, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, verses 10 through 12. This is, this is David's response to being confronted for his sin against Bathsheba. And um, he says this. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, David's relationship with God was based upon repenting consistently, and trusting that God not only wants to, but is more than capable and more than able to make us into the new creations he promises to make us into. And these promises of being a new creation in Christ are all the way back to the beginning. They really do. When God promised Adam and Eve in the garden to restore them. And, and the promise has been the same since then. Make my heart new, O oh God. Make my spirit new. Make my joy new. I think those are heart cries. Those are prayers I think God listens to. And, and I think my hope, and this is just where I've been, maybe for you, maybe it's helpful. My hope is that over the course of this incoming new year, over this next year, uh, my hope is that my heart would be in that place more so. That I would just come to God more often with all of my mess and all my junk. That I would just cry out to him and say, hey God, would you please make my heart new? Would you make my spirit new? Would you make my joy new? And that doesn't mean I'm not going to have to look at him and say, look, I, I sinned in these very specific ways. And here are some very specific ways I need you to help me to walk out this new life you've given me. That needs to happen too. But I think the posture of that when I'm coming to God, that relationship between me and him has to look like, hey, God, you're, you're my father, you're my daddy. I didn't have one growing up because he left, right? Um, so it's hard for me to image what it looks like to have a daddy in your life. Um, but to come to him and say, Dad, would you, would you make my heart new? Would you make my spirit new? Would you make my joy new? And then for me, I trust that he'll do just that. And my hope is the same for you, of course, this new year. Amen? Okay, would you stand with me? Father, thank you for our time together. Um, Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, you... Uh, Continue to speak to us as we uh, close our time together. Help us, to, uh, help us to join you in worship. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.